The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This is our last session studying evangelism, our last time on that topic. Next week, we'll begin a Heroes of the Faith uh, series. And the week after that, we're starting our uh, work projects. Uh, We're doing one in June, one in July, one in August. Uh, I checked the sign-ups earlier, and they are uh, scantily filled in. So um, if you are wanting to do a work project on a uh, Wednesday night, uh, the first one's in two weeks. So I would urge you to go down to the North Tower and look at the various options. There's a lot of different things, visiting homebound, working with CEF, doing an international picnic. Um, there's a lot of things that we're looking at. You can choose from a wide range, uh, array of things. So our desire was to get us out of this building on, uh, during the summer and go out and minister to some people. And uh, there's a lot of different ways we can do that. So please prayerfully consider those things. You have a week or so, but we're going to want to organize uh, people next week in those work projects. All right, let's go over the gospel outline uh, again. Uh, uh, I have laminated cards if any of you need any. Um, anybody need one of these if you haven't received one yet? Okay, um, Gail, here you go. Yeah, how can I miss that shirt? Isn't this an incredible shirt? I mean, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought I saw, yeah. Can you have one? No, absolutely not. Just kidding. There you go. Could you give one to Horace back there, please? All right. Basically, our focus has been um, on what the gospel is. That's what we've been studying uh, so that you can explain it rightly. It's not so much that you memorize the God-Man-Christ response uh, outline. The filled-in areas are obviously to help you uh, know what to say in each of them, but you know, I find that every gospel encounter is going to be a little bit different. So in the God section, we begin with God as creator. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Because of God's creative power, we find that he is loving. You don't have to look much to see the love of God. You see it everywhere in creation. God has amply provided for all of our needs. We just talked about that this past Saturday at a wedding. And we were talking about how God's provision of a wife for Adam showed his love for Adam. Uh, especially in that she was a helper suitable for him or well lined up for him. We see the love of God in everything he does, don't we? And so therefore, I like this verse in Acts 14. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Uh, this, ta- this talks about that, that area of ministry that, or, or provision that we call common grace blessings. These are blessings that God gives to everybody, whether they love him or not, whether they obey him or not, whether they even know him or not. Uh, Paul says in Acts 17, what you worship is something unknown I am now going to proclaim to you. So he has been providing good things for people who didn't even know him, from people, for, for people who didn't acknowledge him in any way. God has shown love to everybody in the face of the earth. He is a loving God. Secondly, we see that God is king. Uh, as the creator, he has the right to rule over uh, his creation. He is king. He is sovereign. He establishes his rule over heaven and earth. And as a king, he has the right to make laws, which he has done. The Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments uh, are uh, the laws of God. 
the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, which we've talked about, the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. This clearly establishes God's right to rule, and he has uh, established these laws. Uh, thirdly, we talked about God as judge. Uh, Psalm 96.13 says he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. God is a judge. Uh, he is a creator. He is a king. He is a judge. And as such, we know that he is holy. Uh, the second section is man. Uh, we lined it up with each of these. Man is created by God the creator, rebellious against God the king, and under judgment by God the judge. That's the connection in the man section. First, we're created by, uh, by God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the image of God means that we are created to be like God. We are like him. Uh, secondly, our purpose is to know him and to love him. And our role is to serve him. So we are created by God the creator. But unfortunately, we are also rebellious against God the king. We pointed out that we are universally rebellious. Romans 3.10-12 uh, is a very strong statement on universal rebellion. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So this is a strong statement on the universal rebellion. Rebellious against God's laws, 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. At that point, I thought it would be beneficial for you to bring your uh, hearer back to the Ten Commandments and start bringing out those Ten Commandments and using them in the person's life. Help them to see how they themselves have broken the commandments of God. Everyone has. All of us have sinned. That means all of us have broken God's commands. Uh, the prohibitions, we have done things he told us not to do. And the uh, commissions, the things he has told us to do, then we've not done. We've not loved him with all of our heart and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And so um, we have rebelled against God's laws. And then uh, there is judgment day coming. We're under judgment by God the judge. Judgment day is coming, Matthew 12:36. I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. It's your job as the evangelist to make the reality of judgment day very vivid in their minds and their imaginations and their hearts. You're kind of creating around them by your words and your demeanor a sense of judgment day. There's no point whatsoever in using humor. There's nothing funny about it. It is a day of darkness, not light. It says in the book of Amos, it's a serious day, a day in which there'll be great sorrow and grief. And some, for some, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yes? Do other major religions have the concept of judgment day? I guess, I don't know if Islam does. I mean, certainly. Well, Islam has a heaven and hell. Uh, my sense of Islam, I'm not an expert Islamic scholar, but my feeling is that, that they really elevate the sovereignty of Allah rather than so much the justice of Allah. And so basically... Um, this is the whole problem I have with Islam is that there's no atoning sacrifice. How does the justice of Allah get demonstrated in the ones he shows mercy to? Do you hear that? He shows mercy to some. I mean, why would you believe in a religion where everybody goes to hell? I mean, I would, I would choose a different religion. All right, what's the point? Whether you believe it or not, you're going to hell. And so, you know, my feeling is at that point, just find the best meal you like and live wherever you want because you're going to hell at the end. My feeling is that is not Islam. There clearly are some people that will be the faithful the obedient, the submissive ones, all right? But they sin, they acknowledge it. The question is, how does Allah demonstrate his justice in their case? There's no atoning sacrifice. There's no cross. He's just sovereignly merciful to them. Well, I think that makes him unjust. Do you see that? <clears throat> in that he just overlooks their sin and sends them to paradise, etc. But so I don't, I can't answer your question. I don't know about all the religions, but I do know that there is a judgment day. And you know, the, the funny thing is they know it too. The people you're talking to, they feel it inside their hearts. 
I mean, you hear the story about Hitler's suicide in his bunker. You think, that can't be it. There's got to be something after that. What a wicked man. Just because he put a bullet in his brain, it's over? No, it's not over. There's a judgment day. And they know it. You sense it inside your heart. You know that God's righteous judgment is against all who do wrong. The problem is that we all do wrong. <clears throat> now, the judgment penalty, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I've said before, I think it's beneficial to talk about death, that there's a physical death, but then there's a spiritual death, the two deaths, etc. So that's the man section. God, man, third section is Christ. Christ. Christ is God's provision for our sin. Uh, Christ is Savior. It says in Matthew 1.21, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, we talked about how it's essential to give the biography of Christ. You need to talk uh, about what Christ has done. First of all, who he is, what he did um, on the cross, etc. Who he is, he's the God-man. John 1.1, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, etc. He is the God-man, incarnation. Secondly, the miracles that Jesus did. Matthew 11.5 uh, it says the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Or you could talk about John 20, uh, 30, which says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. You know, it's, it's important that you study the details of a text like that. These are written refers to what? It refers to the miracles that John wrote about, the seven signs. You know, the, the changing of the water into wine and the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the nobleman's son, the, the walking on the water, all of those things, the seven signs, the healing of the man born blind, Lazarus, those are seven miracles that John shows. Those miracle accounts are written so that you may believe. That shows that the writing down of Jesus' miracles is a basis, a valid basis of saving faith. Therefore, you ought to talk about the miracles. You ought to talk about the great things that Jesus did. There are good reasons to believe that Jesus is Savior, his miracles, and his sinlessness. 1 Peter 2:22. he committed no sin, nor is any deceit in his mouth. Uh, secondly, of course, not just Jesus' supernatural life, but we have to talk about his substitutionary death. 1 Peter 2:24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Uh, and 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this, we have to talk about that substitutionary aspect, the exchange. This is all review. You should know this uh, by now. Uh, thirdly, we want to talk about Jesus' saving resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then finally, his salvation gifts. He offers total forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, last week, we began to talk about the response section. It is important for people to respond. We can't, they can't just say, huh, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. All right? There has to be some kind of response. They have to respond to the gospel, and it's your job as evangelists to tell them how they ought to respond. But you can't make them respond. You can't produce the response in them. The question that is asked, you want to bring them to this point, what must I do to be saved? That's been your job. Up to that point, God, man, Christ brings you to the point where they are able to, to see a problem and to see that there's a solution, but they need to connect to it. What must I do to be saved? Philippian uh, jailer, um, Acts 16.30. What you must do is repent and believe. Repent and believe the good news. That's what you must do. Repent is turn away from sin like a U-turn toward God and believe the gospel. You must not, however, work for it because it's by grace or wait for tomorrow. And ultimately, what do you get? Eternal life 
a new creation by God the Creator, joyful servant to God the King, completely pardoned by God the Judge, and adopted by God the Father. This is the whole gospel. This is what we've been uh, talking about. Any questions about the gospel outline? God, man, Christ, response. God is creator, king, lawgiver, judge. We are sinful. We're created by God the king. We're rebellious, sinful, uh, standing in judgment uh, for everything that we've done. Christ is God's provision. He is the God-man. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead. And now repentance and faith, repentance and forgiveness of sins through faith is preached in his name throughout the world. Now it's time for them to respond. All right, um, take your outline, uh, which is uh, week eight, I think it is. Um, If you look on page five, we've already talked about response. I want to talk about the invitation system. First of all, what do I mean by the invitation system? What are we talking about with that? Yes. Right. Um, we, we, I think it's our job as, as evangelists to bring them to a point where they make some kind of response. They have some kind of, and some people call that an invitation. We're going to give them an invitation to respond. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, that we are to make invitations. Look on um, uh, page six of the outline. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 22, 9 and 10. There it says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Revelation 19.9, then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So there's this invitation to a great banquet, like a party, uh, the, the best ever, most incredible thing, the invitation. Along with these passages on the invitation, the Greek says, call, an invitation to come to the wedding banquet are others in which God himself is inviting sinners to come to salvation. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Do you see all those? It's imploring. The Heavenly Father imploring. In Isaiah 55, come to the waters. Those things don't satisfy. Come, buy and eat without money and without cost. There's an invitation there, an imploring uh, by God. He does it earlier in, in Isaiah 1 when he says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. See, that there's an invitation. Or in John 7:37, this is a very good example of Jesus giving an invitation. Uh, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isn't that marvelous? You get the picture of Jesus up on a raised dais or standing up on a chair or something like that. He wants everyone to hear. He's like the picture of wisdom crying aloud in the streets in, uh, in Proverbs 9. You know, he, he wants everyone to hear him. You remember the situation in John 7 where his brothers wanted him to go up to the feast and he says, I'm not going. Remember? And they don't understand. They think, you know, no one who wants to become a public figure acts like this. What are you doing? This is it. This is one of the big times. Why would you not go up? And it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's such a telling uh, statement. If you think you can give Jesus advice on how to do uh, his ministry, you don't believe in him, at least not the way you should. He doesn't need any advice from his brothers on how to manage his messianic ministry. All right? He knows exactly what he's doing. 
And so he comes uh, in secret almost. He just comes in along with everyone else and no one knows who he is. But on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stands up and in a very vocal and open way. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Amazing how Christ-centered was Christ's teaching. He's very centered on himself. You, if you're thirsty, I am your answer. I am your solution. Uh, that's what he does. So that's a clear invitation. Or then Matthew 11:28 through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a, an invitation given by Christ. And then Revelation 22:17, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So that's clear invitation. By the way, in Revelation 22, 17, who's giving the invitation? The Spirit and the Bride. Who's the Bride? The Church. The Church of Jesus Christ. And so the Church of Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, are saying what? Come. Come to Christ. Come to salvation. That's an invitation, isn't it? There's a sense of that appeal uh, being, uh, you know, reaching out. We should, in concert with these scriptures, invite our hearer to repent and trust Christ. We should wait for them to respond to that invitation. This is indeed a moment of eternal consequence. What will they say? However, it is good to remember that Whitfield had his doctrine straight when he stated that no one can respond to this invitation unless God works it in them by his spirit. This is exactly what Jesus meant to communicate when he concluded that parable on the general invitation to the wedding banquet with these words. Matthew 22:14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay? So there's a general call that goes out. If I stand up on a chair in the mall until they throw me out, it is private property after all. But if I stand and say, anyone's thirsty, let him come to Jesus and drink, whatever. That's a general invitation. Some elect might hear it and they'll respond. Some chosen people may respond. Most won't, including the security guards. All right, maybe some of the security guards will be saved. All right, but the fact of the matter is there's a wide, broad, physical invitation that goes on all the time all over the world. Many are called, but only some, only a few are chosen. So uh, I believe that there's two calls. There's the audible, physical call that goes out by the evangelist, and then there's the what some call irresistible or effectual or sovereign call of the Holy Spirit within, in the, kind of in the sound waves of the gospel given by the human messenger. And so God also calls and he gets whoever he calls. That's a, a wonderful thing. Now, nowadays we have something called, however, the invitation system. Now, when we talk about the system, it implies a certain technique, all right? A certain... Uh, schema, a certain plan or strategy whereby you can get people to respond to the gospel. Now, that is different than giving an invitation, you see. It's different. The invitation system, we invite sinners to come forward to walk down an aisle at church in front of the building as a demonstration of their desire to follow Christ. We tend to think if many people come forward, the Spirit has been working mightily. And if no one comes forward, the Spirit has not been working at all. We couple this with other outward signs like signing a commitment card, praying the sinner's prayer, more on that in a moment, giving a testimony of conversion, etc. All of these outward acts may be evidences of God's work in their souls or it may not be. It is no proof either way if someone does these outward visible acts or if they do not. Do you understand that? It's no proof either way. If you have 160 people come forward, does that mean 160 people will be going to heaven as a result? 
We don't have any idea. We don't know. Because people come forward, they do all kinds of things, and that doesn't mean they're genuinely saved. However, we believe that God can use those things. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. Occasionally I give invitations. Uh, I will ask people to get up and move somewhere, etc. I don't have a problem with that. But there are some dangers to it. And the one thing that bothers me is a sense of technique. In other words, if your tone of voice is just right, if you get the music just right, um, if there's enough uh, kind of feeling in the room that you can get somebody to be converted. And that's a, a trouble that I have. The invitation system... Uh, the pre- uh, precursor to it, I think, was invented by Charles Finney in the 1830s. And since then, it's been popularized by many revivalist preachers such as D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. Before this approach, people were justified through simple faith in Christ without ever coming forward in any service. Martin Luther never came forward anywhere. He did go a lot of places, though. He was moving all the time. <laughs> but uh, he, he came forward at the Diet of Worms and defended justification by faith alone. Uh, but he didn't have, they didn't have that system. Started with, uh, with, uh, Finney's anxious bench. You ever heard, heard about this? The anxious bench is where people who are anxious about their souls would come and sit and they would be anxious on the bench. All right. And they'd be concerned about their soul. All right. And then someone would come and pray with them and talk to them about their soul. They might be weeping. They might be kneeling down, but they were to get up out of their seat and come sit on the mourner's bench or on the anxious bench. That's the beginning of it all. That's where it all started. The idea of getting up and moving and changing your position in the sanctuary as a step to salvation. Um, So that was what he did. Now, the problem I have with the Second Great Awakening and Finney and all that is their basic approach is if you get the technique right, people are going to get saved. If people didn't get saved, you didn't get the technique right. In other words, God's always willing to pour out a revival. He's always willing to save souls. He's always willing to do this stuff anytime if you can just get it right. If you get your prayers right, if your own personal piety is right, your, your, there's personal holiness in, involved in everybody. Uh, if, if you preach it right, if you get the music right, if everything's right, people will be saved. And then the flip side is if people are not saved, one of those things didn't happen right. And so that's, that's a, um, the predecessor to the modern invitation system. Now, instead of banking on these contrivances, we want to present the pure gospel, apply it passionately to the hearer, then give the person an opportunity to respond. If they delay or deny the gospel, we must passionately implore them to reconsider, warn them of the brevity of life, the coming of judgment, uh, judgment of God, and persuade them about some matter that they've questioned. Ultimately, though, we have to leave the matter to God. Now, what is the outward and visible sign of the inner work of justification? Baptism. I mean, you guys are Baptists, aren't you? I mean, that's the outward and visible sign, not coming forward. It always shocks me how Baptists will actually put more emphasis on the coming forward than on even on the water baptism. To me, water baptism was the outward and visible sign that God gave that people were saying that they had been justified by faith in Christ. It's surprising to me that Baptist churches have made coming forward at Sunday morning worship services to be the outward and visible sign of having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It would seem that Baptists would emphasize the biblical outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality, namely baptism. While baptism itself doesn't save, yet it is evidence of salvation, the physical sign Christ gave for us to mark out those who are his disciples. Matthew 28:19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. After someone... Yes, go ahead. The, uh, the justification for the invitation is, I think the verse where it says, you acknowledge me before men. If you don't, I won't mm-hmm. acknowledge you. Yeah, Mark chapter 8. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also, also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 
my, my thought on that is that you will be acknowledging Christ before men your whole life, not just that one time in front of um, the congregation. My feeling is, all right, don't take it from the point of view of, of somebody who's sitting and listening, and then they're being urged by an authoritative evangelist that they need to come forward and not be ashamed of their faith in Christ. Rather, think of it from the perspective of the evangelist. Is that the best way to finish the work of preaching, etc.? My feeling is I'd rather preach, if you are genuinely converted, you're going to have to affirm that conversion before a watching and hostile world the rest of your life. And you'll need to, con- uh, you'll need to confess Christ in a hostile world to hostile relatives, to hostile co-workers, hostile, you know, whatever, the rest of your life. And that should be accurately and faithfully taught. That's the issue of counting the cost. You need to be willing to do that. That's a very good point. Thank you. All right, let's talk about the sinner's prayer. Another outward and visible sign that modern evangelists have come to rely upon is the sinner's prayer. Most gospel tracts have some kind of sample prayer in which a repenting sinner, which a repenting sinner can use to express his or her confession to God. Something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I now invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you and follow you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the Billy Graham Steps to Peace with God sinner's prayer. Um, This one's from North American Mission Board, uh, The Greatest Gift. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness. I turn from my sin and ask you into my life to be my Savior and Lord. Forgive my sin and give me your gift of eternal life. Thank you for saving me and giving me eternal life. Amen. One of the interesting things about the one verse card from Nam, it's just a, it's like a credit card or a, or a business card, more like more like a business card, and it's got it's got Romans six twenty three on one side, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what they think is the one verse evangelistic card. On the back is the sinner's prayer. What does that show you about their estimation of the importance of the sinner's prayer? We've been through. All of this content, God, man, Christ response, all the stuff about the incarnation, all that, you've just got a business card. And you're going to put on it Romans 6.23 and the sinner's prayer. Now, what does that tell you? Yeah, maybe not equal, but it is up there. I mean, if you're going to put it, I mean, you've got limited real estate, you're going to put that sinner's prayer. Go ahead, somebody. Yeah. Sure, yeah, this is absolutely essentially we must have that, etc. Now, let's talk about why there could be some support, scriptural support for the sinner's prayer. Perhaps the critical text people use to support this concept is Romans 10:13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right? They say this refers to the sinner's prayer when a person calls on the name of the Lord in prayer and asks him to save them. I think there is some merit to it, but the idea of calling on the name of the Lord goes much deeper than one prayer patterned after something printed on the back of a track. I believe that what occurs in a person who's being saved is that in their hearts, they begin to see themselves as lost and in need of Christ. They trust in him completely and they do so the rest of their lives. Through regener- though regeneration and justification occur just once, we actually go on calling in the name of the Lord forever. I mean, have, you, have any of you called on the name of the Lord recently? I mean, I would think you're doing it over and over and over and over. It's just the first time then. Is it okay for a sinner having heard God, man, Christ's response to want to say something to Jesus or the Lord? Of course it's okay. It's encouraged even. They should begin, but they should recognize that if they're saved, they're going to be calling on the name of the Lord the rest of their lives. You know, I think that's that's important. And also, as I mentioned last time, that is just 
the mark of something that's already happened in you. What is it that justifies somebody? How are their sins actually forgiven? Are they forgiven the moment they say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins? Is that when they're forgiven? Right. Faith comes by hearing. All right. So they have heard and they believed, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So I said to you last week, and I'll say it again this week, every genuine sinner's prayer that's ever been prayed was prayed by somebody who was already justified. Do you see what I'm saying? Their sins were already forgiven by the time they utter that prayer. It's not like God's waiting to hear the prayer. And that's so tech, like technique oriented. You know, and they're, they're wondering, what should I say? My answer is say whatever you want, whatever's on your heart. That's, that's not the issue. You don't need to feed them lines. Go ahead. Go ahead, Susan. I see it as kind of like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a series of ideas or lines that are summaries of bigger ideas and um, theological concepts. And in a way, they seem to kind of capture some basic ideas about repentance and um, eternal life as a result and so on. But I certainly see your point that yeah. people who say this have already... They're already justified. Now, they may say, look, help me. I don't know how to pray. And I have no problem with that. Say, you know, if there's something, we've talked about these things, you could say something like this or that. But just understand, it's not the words that you pray. It's not, it's not, if you're saved, you're already saved. It means you've already believed in your heart. What I Explain what I just said to you. Tell that to them. It's true. If they're genuinely saved, they're already saved by believing in their hearts what God has been speaking to them through the evangelist. And it's going to show in their lives. For the rest of their lives, it's going to show. Yes, Brevard. Uh, I thought over my many of my years, I think, that an invitation, first I do believe in an invitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that an invitation, if you're not saying that it's not applicable to, say, someone who wants to uh, rededicate their life. Mm-hmm. I remember in my own life that uh, many years ago, under my father's ministry, mm-hmm. I believe in that and and as a matter of fact we've talked about that we just need we have some logistical issues we have to we have to find a place to put the orchestra you know because uh, um, you know I, I like actually a lot of places for people to pray um, but anyway keep going Go, keep going well I just uh, I guess it really concerns me a lot you probably know this that we don't have an invitation and uh, I feel like mm-hmm. you have said that out in that big congregation mm-hmm. of some who are regenerated they may mm-hmm. never see them again that's right well Right, and first of all, it isn't true that there isn't an invitation in our service. Actually, I think it would be wrong for me to get up and preach for 40 minutes to a mixed crowd and not be consistently inviting people to respond by faith in Christ. What I'm not necessarily asking them to do is to get up from their pew and walk 40 feet forward to the front of the sanctuary. And, and I think anybody that says you must do that, I want to say, where does the must come from? Scripturally, where are you going to find that? Uh, if I think it's helpful to do that, I'll do it. I just don't, I'm not locked in and bound by it. 
I haven't entirely gotten rid of it. And actually, I'd like to see more praying going on in our church. You know how, uh, and we're going to do that this Sunday. We're going to send out mission trip, mission teams, two, two of them. And we're going to invite people to come up and come forward and put their hands on people and pray for them, as we've done many other times. I think that's beneficial. Uh, and so I think, Brevard, actually, I think what you're describing is beneficial as well. What I am denying, though, is that it's essential, that you must have it. And, and I think that anybody who would argue that it's essential and that you have to have it has no scriptural support to do that. You've got to look at Romans and find out how it is that someone genuinely gets saved. But anyway, let's keep, let's keep going. Um, we have so much to cover tonight. And uh, Anyway, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But as I talked about last week, as my dear friend Andre got saved, you remember that? Were you all here? You remember when I put my hand on his shoulder and all that? All right, you don't, not yet, not yet, not yet, okay? I'll let you know, all right? I just can't stand that whole technique thing. You know, C.S. Lovett's thing on soul winning. Put your hand on his shoulder, press down lightly, bow in a commanding voice, and repeat after me. Now's your time, okay? That's psychology. We don't need that. You don't need that. It's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that convicts somebody. George Whitfield is right. I can't make you do that. I can make, perhaps, in one indirect sense, your head bow. I can even, in some compelling sense, make you repeat prayers after me. But I can't make you believe them. And I cannot justify you. That's God's work. Yes? The thing is, we cannot make the heart stone into a heart of flesh. No, we can't. No, you can't. That is so true. We're talking about creation of new life who's who has the power to do that god does and god's not looking for a technique i mean it's not like alibaba and the 40 thieves where you're in the cave and you can't remember the words it's like i'll never get out of here what is it uh open sassafras open thyatira you know you can't remember and until you get the words right no it's got nothing to do that he's searching the heart he knows faith he saw it in abraham he's been seeing it he knows it because you know why he gives it He's the one giving it. It's not like he gives it and then didn't know that he gave it. You know, remember what Jesus said in in Matthew 16. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. That's it right there. That's how someone gets saved. God reveals it to them. But I believe he reveals it through the human agency of the preaching of the gospel. It's while it's going on, the eyes are open. Remember Cornelius in Acts 10. It's while the gospel is being preached, the Holy Spirit fell. And they're listening, they're listening, and then they just believe. God opens their hearts. It's just such a beautiful thing. All right. Um, yes, go ahead, Landis. Quickly, uh, it seems like in some cases I've seen people who seem to have confidence in their salvation. They can tell you the night they walked in a Billy Graham crusade and prayed the sinner's prayer. But it seems like that's the confidence of their salvation mm-hmm. rather than believing the gospel. I don't mm-hmm. hear that in their testimony. That's right. We're going to talk in a minute about what are some valid grounds of assurance. Um, you know, I, I came forward at the Billy Graham, you know, uh, revival. If that's all you've got, I fear for you. Yeah, go ahead. Since that's a cultural issue, you go somewhere else and people talk about when they got baptized. Mm-hmm. But when they took that outward step. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about people that have not shown no fruit. In yeah. fact, if, uh, if yeah. I were to know their heart, which I don't, only God does, I mean, I would say, you know, showing no evidence of salvation. But yet they 
give this as the proof of their salvation, that they, in a certain campaign, came forth and spread the That's right. It's a very good point. People also use issues like church membership. I joined the church when I was whatever. Yes, go ahead. Do you encourage people who make a confession to be baptized? Well, yeah, I think I think it's important for them to understand the next step. But we usually consider that um, what we call follow up, etc. We don't we don't emphasize we don't say you know baptismal regeneration. But basically, what we want to do is I say, well, what, what must I do? You know, in, in some places in Acts 16, he doesn't mention baptism, but they're baptized that very night. So my you know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the simple answer. And yet that night they're baptized. So Paul must have told them about baptism. So what I would want to do is say, let's understand, all right, baptism. Let's talk about water baptism. And to me, it's connected to the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. I think the thief on the cross proves us that. Uh, Paul says it quite directly in 1 Corinthians 1, the Lord did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Therefore, he separates the two. Um, The gospel and baptism are two different things, but they're closely related. I think the significance of baptism is this, that it's a simple thing that anybody can do. It's a simple mark of whether you've submitted your life to the the king. Let's go back to our gospel outline. God, creator, king, lawgiver, judge, right? King, have you come back under the authority of the king? The king wants you to be water baptized. You don't want to do it, that's big. If you are able to do it and you don't want to do it, that's big. The thief on the cross, he couldn't do it. Do you think if Jesus had said you need to be water baptized and he had had the opportunity, would he, would he have done it? Oh, absolutely he would have. The Ethiopian eunuch did it right away. I don't believe in, an, in a delay, a long delay after somebody's given a creditable profession of faith. All right, now what about assurance of salvation? They get done praying the sinner's prayer or whatever it is you do with them. They listen, they, they give you some testimony. Uh, I believe, I believe. Tears are coming down their face. They say... I believe everything you said. I want to be a Christian. Am I a Christian? Am I, am I, are my sins forgiven? They want some assurance. What do you do? Is that your job? Should you tell them? I want you to know you are definitely going to go to heaven. Joyce, you're saying no. I mean, that seems kind of cool. What, what should we do at that moment? I think you need to direct them to uh, Scripture, the sharp study of Scripture. Make sure they're involved in the Bible reading the church. The things that are going to show is that they are going to have a Absolutely. I appreciate you saying that. And we're going to get in a minute on, on sheet nine as we're hurrying here, um, you know, grounds of assurance, like seven, eight, nine things that they're going to want to see in themselves. And, and this is just more material. It's more things. But you could do it with follow-up. Say, look for these things in yourself. But one thing I would do with somebody at that moment, they've, they've just got done praying, something's happened, and they want some assurance. Say, I want you to know that if you have genuinely trusted in Christ and you have genuinely repented from your sins, God's promise is true to you. He's not, he's not going to break his promise. He's a promise keeper. He said, anyone who hears my word and believes him, him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. You just give him the scriptures. But you have a conditional in there, if, if you have genuinely believed, etc. Uh, you may even want to talk about the parable of the seed and the soils and say, look, there's some that immediately respond with joy. 
Time will tell in their case. But, you know, you've listened, you, you, you yearn for that, then if I, would, if I were you, I would follow hard after Christ. Repent and believe every day of your life. Keep walking. But I think, I think what you need to do is tell them, <clears throat> first of all, it's not my job to give you assurance. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Romans 8.16, the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. So I, what I'm going to do in a minute is give you, what I do is give people grounds for assurance. When, when you start to see these things in your life, your assurance will get stronger and stronger. And we'll talk about what those are in a minute, okay? Let's see what else there is. Parable of the seed and the soils. Well, look, right here on page 11, there's a whole bunch of them listed. But we'll get to it uh, in study nine in a minute. But um, evidence of regeneration, see that? Love for God, love for neighbor. What does that sound like, by the way? What's that? The two, two great commandments. Oh, what do you know? The Holy Spirit's working obedience to the commands of God in you. Well, that's one of the tests in 1 John. If we know that we have come to know him, if what? We obey his commands. All right. Love for God, love for neighbor, glad obedience to God's word, discernment over doctrine, hatred of sin, temptations resisted, delight in God's word, godly character traits such as the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, testimony of the indwelling spirit, good deeds done to those in need not to pay for sins, but just because they're right to do and delightful, etc. Those are some. Okay? So, assurance. Turn to week nine. This is a great <clears throat> segue right into it. Page three, week nine, grounds for assurance. Do you see that? Right away. Grounds for assurance. In the last session, we touched on the idea that an evangelist should not so much give assurance of salvation uh, to a hearer based on supposedly the sinner's prayer, that's, that's malpractice. You know, don't, as soon as they get done praying the sinner's prayer, I want you to know that no matter what, you're going to heaven. <laughs> I mean, how could you even do that in light of the parable of the seed and the soils? I want you to know no matter what happens from here on out, you're saved. You're done. It's done. It's, that's nobody, it doesn't work that way. And the Bible frequently speaks in a different way. The scripture says rather that we should test ourselves to see if we're in Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, what are some questions on the test? You might want to know that. I mean, I remember when I was studying for the GRE in Japan, I got a study guidebook that was about three inches thick with something like 10 sample, full-blown sample exams. I took six of them. Full-blown dress rehearsals. Hours spent practicing for this exam. I want to know the questions. I would like to have known the questions that would be on my test, but they weren't going to do that. But I'd like to at least know what kinds of questions they asked. Whatever there is, all right? And so I I got to do the reading comprehension, the math, the logic problems, which were killers. I'll never forget that. The bus problem, like you are the manager of a city bus system, and you've got three cities and 14 buses. What is the most efficient? I'm thinking, I I can't figure this stuff out. It's a timed exam. All right, what questions would be on this test? It says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you know that you're in Christ? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, what kinds of questions? Well, let's start with this one. Love for God as shown by obedience to God's commands. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. I mean, doesn't that answer the... uh, free gift of grace thing that you can now, your, all your sins are forgiven, that means you can live whatever, however way you want? That is simply not true. Because if you're genuinely saved, you will yearn to obey God's commands. 
And let's remember what it is we're saved from. What are we saved from? From sin. What is sin? Right, lawlessness, breaking God's commands. So if you're saved from sin, what does that mean concerning God's commands? You're now going to walk in them. You're going to be fulfilling them. You're going to live according to them. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands. Secondly, daily lifestyle like Jesus Christ, walking in the light or in the truth. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. And by the way, people have struggled before, and I've said this before, but I'll say it now again. People have struggled before with the seeming perfectionism of 1 John. Have you ever struggled with that? 1 John 3 says something like, um, in him is no sin. If anyone sins, he's not in him, something like that. You're like, oh, no. And you're thinking, yeah, but everybody I know sins. I mean, I see him, all right? <laughs> and so you're like, wow, I mean, then this must be a bad church. I mean, there's genuine Christians somewhere. I got to get out of here. There must be some private, mysterious enclave of perfect people somewhere that I've never met. I have got to find them. I've got to go. But of course, they won't let you in. All right, because you're not perfect yet. And so there's this whole terror that comes over you as you start reading First John, especially in the New American Standard. They just, you know, it just simply translates the simple present in the Greek. NIV uses things like continues in sin, this kind of thing. Tried to help you out um, at any rate. Interpretive translation. Um, and that's fine. But, but they, they wrestle with the perfectionism. But I think the best remedy in First John is in First John 1, 6, and 7. Many people point to 8 through 10. If you say you have not sinned, you're a liar, and the truth is not, et cetera. But people don't actually find comfort in that because that could be pre-conversion, right? Pre-baptismal sin. If you say you didn't need a savior in effect, and so you're right back where you started, right? But look at 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin how does that rescue you from perfectionism you're walking in the light and yet what do you need at every moment jesus to do what purify you from all sin you say well how can you walk in the light and still need purification from sin because you're not perfectly like jesus your motives aren't what they should be your intentions aren't what they should be you're not perfectly like jesus there's a gap between you and jesus and i believe that gap is sin i just think it is I'm not talking about his role as second person in the Trinity or incarnation and all that. I'm just talking about his behavior, his attitude, his motives, the way he approaches situations, the way he deals with people, everything. There's a gap between us and Jesus. You need that covered, don't you? And that's covered by what? What covers that? Yeah, his blood, the blood of Jesus. Or we could say grace. Grace covers it. Grace covers it completely. But you can walk in the light and yet need ongoing purification for sin. And frankly, every true saint knows that, they, that both is going on. They are walking in the light as he is in the light. And, and the blood of Jesus is purifying them from every sin. So you need both. And to me, that rescues us from the bitterness of perfectionism. Yes, go ahead. I had an issue with uh, Romans 8:16. Like, as, a, as far as witnessing, the Spirit testifies. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I wouldn't, I would hesitate to use it because everybody says that God speaks to them. Mm-hmm. I mean from all faiths, yeah. whether you know God or not. Sure. And so, if I quote that, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I see. Or, mm-hmm. you know, say, you know, I see, you know, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's telling them. 
Mm-hmm. I see your point. I guess for me, you know, on, on assurance, I've, I've kind of brought it down to three things. Um, I, I think I isolated them after I wrote this. Um, these are all good, but you want to know what, what I teach on assurance are three things. There's assurance that's reasoned out in the mind based on the promises of God. Basically, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, that kind of thing. God said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I've called on the name of the Lord. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. I have trusted in him. You know, that kind of thing. It's just a simple, basic assurance that comes from the fact that God keeps his promises. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. You just trust it. It's based on the promise of God. You just simply take God's promise and you wave it and say, this is what he said he would do. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You just take that and say it must be true. That's the first level. Second level. It's assurance that's worked out in the life by the transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's what 1 John is all about. We say, if we say that we know him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. It has to do with what's going on in your life. Is there a pattern of obedience? Is there a pattern of submission to his commands? Is there a walking in the light as he is in the light? Is there a love for him in that, in that regard? An ongoing obedience, a transformed life. Secondly, transformed life. So first, worked, uh, reasoned out in the mind by the promises of God. Uh, you're reasoning out based on the promises of God. Secondly, it's, it's assurance that's worked out in the life by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The third and highest form of assurance is assurance that's poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Or Romans 8.16, the Spirit testifies with our spirits. Those three work together. You hear the promises, you believe them, you trust in them, you are a sinner, you know you're a sinner, Jesus died for sinners, he will not reject you, he will not. You just think that way. You think like a child of God. Secondly, you see the things that are happening in your life. You hate things you used to love and you love things you used to hate. You're transformed. You're living a different kind of life. You're obeying his commands. Thirdly, he just speaks to you. He's there and he wasn't before. And now he's in you. He's testifying inside you. And that testimony of the indwelling spirit is as powerful as he wants to make it. He could lift you up to the third heaven and show you paradise if you want to. And that would be highly assuring, wouldn't it? (laughs) Okay. So those are the three levels of assurance. I don't know what else I wrote here. Conviction of personal sinfulness. Number four, love for brothers and sisters in Christ, self-sacrificially and tangibly. Notice what book I keep quoting here. Have you noticed? What book is it? You know, you want to know about assurance, read 1 John. That's what it's for. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5. It's, it's the assurance book. 1 John, 5, 1 John is all about assurance. You want to know about assurance, that's what you... Where you look, uh, number five, hatred of the evil world system. Number six, acknowledgement of true apostolic doctrine, especially that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Number seven, perseverance in true doctrine of Christ. Number eight, ongoing purification for sin, regular tangible victories over temptation through Christ. Your assurance will go through the roof if you start defeating sin patterns that, that caused you all these troubles before. Your assurance will go right up. Number nine, active life of righteous actions in Christ. Number 10, testimony of the Holy Spirit setting our hearts at rest in God's presence. There you go. There's 10 of them. So that's a test. You want to test yourself? Do that test. All right. Are those things happening in your life? All right. Now there's some practical things on workplace evangelism, which we're not going through, but you can read. Evangelistic Bible studies, friendship evangelism, responding to evolution. I mean, if you're going to start with God as creator, you might actually come across this. (laughs) 
from time to time. So there's some things in there on evolution that you can... I'll tell you this on evolution. There are three things I always remember, all right? If, you, if you're interested in this, three things. Number one, first of all, evolution isn't bad science. It's terrible science. Terrible theology. It's worse theology than it is bad science, but at any rate. Uh, number one, where did the first cell come from? All right, big problem. No one has any answer. They never will. How do you go from non-living matter to the first living cell? It's a miracle. All right, well, we're not supposed to do miracles in the evolutionary system. How do you do that? That's just weird. I mean, I thought they rejected spontaneous generation and all that kind of stuff. But at any rate, how you go from non-living organic chemicals to the first cell? And it didn't live long, I'm sure. It had to reproduce, but quick. All right, at any rate, that is cell number one and two. All right, off it goes. Number two, the fossil record. Why, why do we not see continuous evolution in the fossil record? And number three is irreducible complexity. What about organs that would do nothing for the body if it were 98% formed? It's got to all be there, all of it working. It argues against evolution, okay? Like feathers or the eyeball and all that, uh, those three things. So look at evolution, etc. Finally, defending the faith. There are two things that set Christianity apart from all other religions, all other religions, and that is the supernatural scriptures and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. No other religion has it. When anybody talks to you about, oh, all religions are basically the same, whatever. No, we've got supernatural scriptures, the prophecies, all of those things, and we have the empty tomb of Christ. There's no other religion that has those two things. Okay? Any questions? Yes? This is probably more, I'm not sure how related it is to evangelism, but the question for me that I have. When you look at invitations like what Jesus gave in John 7, 37, on the last day, for example, right. he said that they were thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew 11, 28, 30, inviting everyone. Right. How do I understand those open-ended invitations with his frequent, uh, I guess, uh, dictate to his disciples not to tell people that he's the Christ? Well, I think that the commands not to tell people usually have to do with the miracles, and that ties into the motives. Like huge crowds were coming and wanted to make him king by force, remember? So he goes and hides himself. Um, There's a certain pace to his ministry. He didn't want them all coming after him because of the miracles. So I think he he tells healed people, don't tell anyone about this, but they go out and tell. Uh, And as a result, Mark draws a direct connection. As a result, Jesus could no longer come and go in that town. He had to leave. All right, because it was just such a huge throng. There's just a physical side to it. You know, there's, if there's a huge crowd, like one of those soccer riots or whatever, where, you know, everybody's crushed in it, you can't do anything. And so I think that's why he did it. He also warned them not to tell anyone at, on the Mount of Transfiguration about what would happen, et cetera. So he's kind of paying it out and pacing it out. But generally, he's in control of the thing. And by the way, it's not anybody else. It's not his, his brothers are going to tell him what to do. He'll decide when to get up on a chair and say, it's going to be the last and greatest day of the feast. And then he'll say, Come to me and drink. He knows the timing for everything. So that's the best I'd say. They call, it, they call it the gospel mystery, why he would tell people, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. Another time, though, he heals a guy and says, and the guy wants to follow him. And he says, don't come with me, but go back into your village and tell everyone what God has done for you. So it seems kind of different. Any other questions? Okay, we're out of time. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time we've had to study tonight, and I thank you for this entire course on the gospel, on understanding the four points of the gospel. Pray that you help us to be faithful in witnessing, faithful in getting the message out. Father, I pray that you would be exalted in our evangelism and that people would be saved as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.